Right. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that is the supreme one of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We continue our survey of the Old Testament and understand that it is a survey. We can't cover all 50 chapters in one setting, so it's going to be a speedy Gonzalez through the book of Genesis this morning, if you know what that is. Um, so as we begin, <clears throat> let me ask you, what is the key word of Genesis? <clears throat> put up your hand. You don't have to put this on the recording. No, you don't get to answer. You had your chance last week. So <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Keyword is what? Beginnings. What is the theme? Now you can answer. Yes. Yes. Help him out. Promise. And key people. Who remembers the key people? If... Go ahead. Joseph. Okay, so that's the common understanding of the key um, uh, people. <clears throat> I've added God, and I again omitted to add Noah, and you'll see why Noah is important. But it's God, Abraham, um, <clears throat> Adam, Isaac, and uh, Noah. You can add Jacob and Joseph in there as well. <clears throat> the author is Moses, and I've expressed this last time. Um, he writes it sometime before his death, which is in 1405 <clears throat> before Christ. <clears throat> so I'm going to take what I just gave you <clears throat> and provide a, an outline for you. There are four aspects that Genesis deals with. It's creation, fall, flood, and nations. Now look how those four people are significant in this outline. God, you could probably add Adam in there as well. God, Adam, as uh, key characters in Genesis. Then we have Adam as the focus of the fall, and you know that from Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> then we have the flood, which is Noah, chapter 6 through to 10. And then we have the development of nations, 
beginning with Abraham. Actually, it starts in chapter 11, but you'll see that there is a connection to Abraham right through to the end uh, in chapter 15. That is an outline of the entire book. And it's always helpful to remember key people as well as key events as you relate it to chapters. So if you can remember those four, that would be helpful. Then you have the scope of the entire book all settled down. Now, that is the general approach to the book of Genesis. I'm going to give you another approach, which I call the internal outline of Genesis. And this is found in what is known as the Toledots. And I'll get to that in a moment's time. What is the purpose of Genesis? To provide a self-revelation of God's power, works, faithfulness, and plan so that they, that is his people, may respond to who he is. <clears throat> In fact, you could probably write this as the purpose of the entire Old Testament. Genesis gives us God as the author of all, and if he's the author of all, I'll wait for you. Then he's the determiner of all, and therefore he reigns over all. And you'll see that as we go through Genesis. Exodus tells us that God is a deliverer of his people. Leviticus tells us that God is holy all the time. The emphasis of Leviticus is holiness. A debut is supposed to be Deuteronomy. <laughs> yeah, I struggle with this keyboard. It, um, it just changes uh, things as I, as I type. But anyway, uh, Deuteronomy uh, demonstrates that God is faithful all the time. Despite Israel's unbelief and disobedience, God remains faithful to his promises. So this gives you a big picture purpose, uh, a purpose of how God progressively reveals part of his nature, the self-revelation. And there's one reason, so that they may respond to him in a proper way. That's no different to what God requires of us as we read the Old Testament. He writes and, and gives the Old Testament as a self-revelation so that we may not only know him more, but that we may respond to that knowledge so that we may live in, um, in accordance with what he has revealed. <clears throat> this provides the ground for Israel's worldview. God slowly, progressively reveals who he is as he lays the foundation for their approach to life. God is in, uh, in essence, building a framework for Israel's perspective of life. <clears throat> is it too um, low? The, can't you guys see it? Okay. So, like I said to you, there is an internal um, outline that is present in this book. And it is known as the Toledots. Does anybody know what a Toledot is? What does it mean? The word means generations or descendants, which is what I prefer because it relates to seed. That is hugely 
significant. Notice in, um, so we have the introduction in chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3. But notice in verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heaven, heavens and the earth. Hmm. The generations of the heavens and the earth? Why on earth would we have uh, a statement such as that? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Older translations says, these are the genealogies of the heavens and the earth. These are the genealogies of Adam. These are the genealogies of Noah. And that is probably a better translation. Genealogies are significant because it gives you the scope of how things unfold. That's the point of genealogies. It has a purpose. Genealogies are not inserted into the Bible to give you a difficult read. A challenge in your Bible reading. Genealogies are there to um, show you how God is unfolding His plan from generation to generation. Even in the generations of the heavens and the earth as things unfold on this world. Now, I'm going to cover this in um, a meta-narrative perspective. That is the big picture perspective. So I'm going to cover significant points in each of these sections. I'm not going to go through each one of them um, at length because I only have 40 minutes left. So uh, allow me to work through these and we will end on Genesis chapter 50 this morning. What Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the introduction to chapter 2 verse 3 reveals is that God is supreme and preeminent. And then all things, because that is true, all things is subservient to Him. You see it in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, Everything is under God. There is nothing that is supreme or above or higher or more significant than God. And since God is creator, everything else is what? Creation. Since God is creator, he therefore deserves the respect and the submission of all that is creation. God demonstrates His Lordship, His Kingship, and His authority, supreme authority over all that He creates. So in the creative act, God demonstrates that, demonstrates that I am Lord, and everything is under me. Dr. Chow says it this way. God, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2, Verse 3 is not myth communicating. I meant to say that way. Myth communicating. But he is myth busting. Because there was a wrong perspective. And, and, and Israel, as well as those in the ancient Eastern world, had a wrong perspective of creation. Had a wrong understanding of how things came to be. They believed that the sun was a god. They believed that the waters were gods. They believed that the, the, the um, dragons and the beasts of the ocean were gods. Yes, dragons existed. They're called, what? Dinosaurs. 
They believe these things, the created things were God, and God sets the record straight. In the beginning, I am the creator, so there is no other God other than me. Also, what you note in Genesis 1, verse 1, notice what it says. In the beginning, God setting him aside as the source and the cause of all things that will follow, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And often they say, well, there was chaos. No. God created a a realm from which He will make all things. But notice what it says in verse 3. And God said, God spoke. God used words and he said, let there be light. And in that instantaneous moment, the very elements of light came into existence. That which causes um, a luminous object, what the, the very fiber of what causes, what is the word? Luminicity? Luminescence. There you go. Thank you for that. God creates. Scientists can't explain this. They have no idea how light is able to travel at the speed that it does. God says, let it be. And it says, okay. And it exists. It is interesting that the Spirit is mentioned And if you read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through to 18, it demonstrates that the one who is creating is who? Christ. You have the will of God demonstrating that creation must exist. You have the word of God creating things, creation, creating things. And you have the spirit of God overshadowing the work of God, the creator. Now, often there is a misunderstanding of how the creation process works. First, God creates light and separates it from darkness. You notice that in verse 3 and 4. And God says, let there be light. And then verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Now, it is not clear if God created the darkness or the darkness exists. Regardless of that fact, God separates the light from the darkness. That's day one. What happens on day four? God creates a sun, moon, and stars to fill the heavens and be the reflection and the the, um, uh, generators of light. I love what it says on day four that uh, God made the sun and the moon to govern the day and the stars also and yet today man looks at the stars and they marvel at the expanse and the 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 billions and billions of stars that are out there and the bible says oh you know what he just threw it out there as if it's not important on day two god crafts the sky and the sea notice what it says there was evening and the And there was morning the first day, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse. So the expanse is the heavens. It's a space between the waters above and the waters below. And some say it's a cloud. Some say it's a canopy. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Day five. What does God do on day five? He fills that expanse with birds. Now that the waters below the expanse have been created, also on day five, God fills that expanse, that area, which is the oceans, the seas, with fish. Then on day three, verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. So God creates land, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. <clears throat> and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw it was good. Land on day three and separation from the oceans. And what does God do on day six? He folds the land with living creatures such as animals and man. Genesis 1 communicates that God is a God of order. <clears throat> There's a set manner through which things have to exist and be created. <clears throat> it also communicates that God is a God of totality. He has total jurisdiction over what he has created. Every space in everything belongs to him. Therefore, God has total jurisdiction over man and woman as well. Genesis 1 also communicates that God is the determiner. He determines space and then he fills that space. He determines the universe and the, the limits of the universe and he fills that universe. He determines the area in which certain creatures should live and he fills it with the creatures that should live there. He creates man. Why? Look at verse 26. Then God says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, so you can eat fish, over the birds of the heavens, so you can eat birds, and over the livestock over all the earth, so you can eat animals, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so you can eat creeping things as well. Not opposed to that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Who determines genders? God. Remember what I just said? That Genesis 1 communicates God's total jurisdiction over mankind. So if God then determines what gender looks like in man, Adam, and in woman, Eve, then we cannot erase that. We cannot change that. It is set by God in creation. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Goes back to the creation mandate in verse 26. Have dominion over the fish, over the birds, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God gives man to eat from the, the land. <clears throat> Every plant is for eating. 
Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with a seed <clears throat> in, in it. I heard somebody say, well, this is why you don't eat leaves. You don't eat letters. It's every plant that bears a seed, meaning it can produce fruit. Now, I don't know if that's what it means. I think it just means that anything that comes from a seed can be edible. But we know that that's not exactly true because there are certain plants that are not edible. That's why I think we should stay away from letters. <clears throat> I'm just joking. Genesis tells us that God creates man with a purpose. Chapter 1 tells us that God gives man dominion. That is why we exist. <clears throat> this is how we give glory to God when we demonstrate and execute our creation mandate as vice regents over the earth. That means that God gives man to the earth to reign over his creation as God demonstrates his reign over creation. Make sense? <clears throat> So this section that we are looking at now covers what is known as primeval history. So the history before the nations come into existence. <clears throat> the Toledot or the generations or genealogies of the heavens and the earth begins in chapter 2 verse 4. <clears throat> These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh God, made the earth, and the heavens. <clears throat> it is plural, which means the heavens of heavens. Anything that can be regarded as heaven from God's perspective is a heaven, not just what we see. So, <clears throat> what does the Toledot of the heavens and the earth communicate? communicates that God has set aside for himself this creation, this creation, this heaven, this earth, for his glory. That means there is no other earth. I just read this week that scientists confirmed they found a second earth. That's a lie. It's an absolute lie. There is no second earth. May look like earth, may smell like earth, but it will not be what God has made on this earth. God demonstrates his authority by singling out this little uh, rock, third rock from the sun, He singles it out and he places man only on this rock. Why? Why? Why does God do that? Why not on every other rock in the universe? This also settles the argument for aliens. Yes, go ahead. That's a good answer. Yes. Anything else? Because it says so. That's what Chow says. <laughs> it, 
There is no other reason explained in Scripture. God chose earth because he chose earth. Not Mars, not the moon, not the other um, earth-like spheres. It is this one that God chose to put man on. In the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, we also find God explaining the creation of mankind as a part of creation. And yet man is placed in creation to rule over creation. And that has huge theological significance because man is to demonstrate God's authority over what he has created. And that will happen in a future day. Not only will Christ reign on earth, but we, his people, will reign with him. God sanctifies this world for himself. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work. That's all that it means. It doesn't mean that God had to take a nap because it was so difficult. No, it just it means that he seized from creating. So God seized from creating his work or his create, creation week. And so he rested. He stopped creating on day seven. Again, that has theological significance because they will argue that creation is still ongoing. We still see the, the effects of creation of day six or day four. I'm sorry, but I understand the clear intention of Scripture. God rested. He seized from creation. That, that is it. That, that's the end of the argument. And I know that even Christian scientists are trying to make an argument that there's still an ongoing um, creative work in that the universe is still expanding. That is creation taking place. It can't be. God seized from that work at the end of day six. So God establishes a relationship between him and this world and he places man on this world to establish a relationship between man and creation. It is also interesting that in the section, it is, this is where man names the woman. It is man who names the woman, woman. Interesting. It is God who takes that name and agrees with man that she is called woman. Notice in verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman. It is first God who establishes her as being distinct from man and brought her to the man, the first marriage. Then man said, this, is, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman. Not wow, man. Whoa, man. Because she was taken out of the man. That doesn't mean that God took out femininity out of 
man, it meant that God made her from man. God changes the natural um, sequence of birthing. And he says, I will demonstrate my power over creation in that I want to do what I want to do. And I'll take a man and make a woman from a man. And there's a debate as if it is actually a rib. It just means a flesh part of man, not necessarily the rib of man. We still have equal amount of rib. Now notice 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This is before the fall. God creates a separation between man and woman even before the parents come along. And man, God says that there must be a distinction between a married couple and their relationship to their father and mother. The, the, the tie must be cut. They need to be independent as image bearers. So God creates man and woman for his glory to reign on his, on his behalf as vice regents over all creation. And if you go back to chapter 1 verse 26, you will see that it's man and woman that ought to reign. Not just man. It's both men and women that are given the right to reign and have kingdom authority over the earth. <clears throat> Often it is just believed that men have that right. God in creation, in the generations of the heaven and the earth, creates distinctions between man and woman, creates dependency between man and the woman, and creates dependency upon himself. And all that God did was good, was great. <clears throat> the Toledot of the heavens and the earth includes the fall. Chapter 3. We find Adam rebelling against uh, God and Eve being deceived by the serpent. Now, there is a huge debate as to is the serpent Satan or did, the, did Satan... Um, uh, possess the serpent. <clears throat> God addresses the serpent as Satan. Your seed um, will be in conflict with her seed. God, in the sovereignty of his plan and will, allows man's rebellion against God. And it is interesting in verse 12, it says the man, um, no, in verse uh, 8, and they heard, sorry, not verse 8, verse 6. She took of the fruit, notice it's not an apple, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. She gave the leftover morsel to her husband. She had the most of the fruit. But notice what it says. Who was with her and he ate? What is God old Adam responsible for the fall? He was there. He was there. Didn't stop it. Didn't tell the serpent, hey, shush, this is my wife. This is my woman. Stay back. Didn't do that. And so 
God holds him responsible for not taking the headship or the leadership with which he was endowed. He was there with him. And he ate. The Bible says, and the, the eyes were opened and they fled from God. That is what sin does. It causes us to flee from God. In your sinful state, you do not run to God. No one seeks after God is what the Bible says. No one. No sinner in the history of humanity runs after God. What does Adam do when God comes? He runs and he hides, not ends, and he hides. That's what we do. We naturally hide ourselves from God. Genesis 3.15 as part of the generations of the heavens and the earth, there is a foundational verse that sets forth the future generations that they will be looking forward to this verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring is a masculine he, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think the better translation is that he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Verse 16, and to the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. So not only does God say, I'm going to give you a seed who will be the deliverer and the conqueror over the enemy, but I will also multiply your pain in childbearing. Prior to this, they did not have, they would not have had pain in childbearing. But here, pain comes as a result of the fall. In pain, you shall bring forth Children, and there's a multiplicity of children will spring forth from your womb. In other words, God increases the capacity to bring forth children. And your desire shall be to rule your husband and he shall dominate you. Is the sense of that last line. God, as a part of the curse on humanity, not only gives pain in childbearing, um, uh, fruitfulness, meaning a, a sped up process of childbearing, but also a desire, a conflicting desire between man and woman. Genesis 3.15 gives us the first message of hope. You need salvation. You need deliverance. But I will provide that deliverance. I will provide for you a savior. That is the hope of Genesis 3.15, which lays the foundation for all mankind. As a part of the generations of the heavens and the earth, we also find the first death. Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have a relationship and she conceives and bears a child. Notice what she says in verse 1. I have begotten from Yahweh, Yahweh or the Lord. I have gotten from Yahweh, she thinks, is the promised seed, the Lord. 
And again, she bore his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. There's a discussion here to, um, um, in that they think that Abel and Cain were twins. Um, and it's possible, I man, I don't think you can say that from the text. Uh, it's possible that they were born apart, but they, it does seem to allude to the idea that they were born together. It says she conceived and she bore Cain, and again she bore his brother Abel. So it's possible. I'm not going to put my head on the block, and you know, if you believe that, yeah, I'm not going to excommunicate you on account of saying that they were twins. It could go either way. Uh, interestingly, the murder that takes place here, Satan is trying to corrupt the seed. Notice he goes after Cain, the firstborn, and kills Seth. So he corrupts the one and destroys the other. Why? Because of the promised seed. I mean, um, Abel. Did I say Seth? Well, I meant, I meant. So Cain kills Abel. So he corrupts the one and destroys the other. But then, interestingly, at the end of the section, Eve produces another child. And his name is Seth. <clears throat> it's almost as if God says, well, these are not the only two that she can produce. Uh, you may have messed up uh, Cain, and you may have destroyed Abel, but there's also another one that can come from her. <clears throat> verse 26 <clears throat> concludes um, verse 25 tells us that God pro uh, provides another offspring for her and you'll see this word offspring appear a lot and a lot or seed because it's, it's always looking back to the promise of 315 and Adam knew his wife again and she both bore a son and called his name Seth for she said God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She's still hoping that this would be the one to save the human race. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Notice what Seth says of Enosh, at the, or at least Moses says of Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Prior to this, they were starting to hope that everyone born would be the one. But they recognized, no, the seed is not born yet. And so they start calling upon the Lord to provide that seed. They are seeking a savior. They are seeking restoration to um, the Lord. You know what Enosh means? Mortal. Mortal. We are dying. And so they start calling on God for salvation. The generations of Adam, the Toledot of Adam, there is no way I'm going to finish, of Adam is chapter 5, verse 1 through to chapter 6, verse 8. Notice what it says. And this is the genealogies of Adam. 
when God created man and he made him in the likeness of man, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and uh, named them. God has authority uh, over them. That's why the naming is there. And man, he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years for he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Like I said to you last time, this is known as the graveyard of Genesis. Every seed born of man, every seed of Adam dies. There's a reason. Because it's not this one. It is not that one. It is not that one. God is limiting and narrowing down the promised line of the seed. Now notice in verse 28, and Lamech had lived, Lamech had lived 182 years, and he fathered his son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one will bring us rest or relief from our hands and from the painful toil of our hands. What is, Noah looking, uh, what is Lamech looking for? A savior. This one, it's this one. He will be our consolation. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years. No, it's not the number of perfection. And he died. After Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Take note that Noah's death is not mentioned. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. It's as if God is giving them a window into salvation. What happens in chapter 6? The corruption of all the earth. Chapter 6 verse 9 gives us the generations of Noah. And we'll look at that in a moment's time. But gen, uh, chapter 6 falls part or forms part of the generations of ooh, Adam. As a part of his generation, there is a corruption that takes place uh, on the earth. What is this corruption? And there's huge debate as to what this means. Chapter 6, verse 1 through to verse 8. Let me summarize what's taking place here. Notice what it says. The sons of God saw the daughters of man in verse 4. The sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore a generation of people who are known as the Nephilim. So think about this. What was the promise to Eve? Your seed will crush his head. 
So what is Satan thinking? What is the best way to ruin the possibility of a seed coming from the woman in order for him to destroy me? Destroy the line of the seed. Take note, the sons of God, whenever you see that term, sons of God, it is always in reference to angels, always. So why would we reinterpret it to mean anything other year? So the angelic host, those who have some of those... (coughs) who have fallen with Adam, with, with, um, with Satan, sees the daughters of men, see the women. Why? Because the seed of the woman is where the promise has been made too. So let me destroy the seed of the woman and corrupt them. <clears throat> and they take for themselves wives, yes, these angels, either by possessing men All these angels coming in the form of men corrupt the seed of the women who were on the earth and they produce a generation that God abhors. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, uh, thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously and and he regretted. That is a, a term of passion. God hated that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him, it's equal to the regret there. Grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. That's man in general. Whom I have created from the face of the land, um, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. And I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And we go back to Noah. Hmm, interesting. Noah's death is not mentioned at the end of verse 32. And Noah finds grace in the eyes of God. Is Noah the Savior? Kind of. He's a type. Look at verse 9. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Finally, somebody that is separate from the the line or the descent of Adam, who is not influenced by the world's corruption. And God chooses Noah to work through Noah by saving not only Noah, but his family as well. And so you get the expression of the, the, the fall of mankind. Go to chapter 9. This is after the flood, after God destroys everything on the earth. Notice what it says. And God blessed Noah, verse 1, and his sons. And he said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. Listen, they are scared of us. The reason they attack is because they're scared we're going to do something to them. And upon everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish, fish are scared of us people. Into your hands they are delivered. What God is doing here is reaffirming the creation mandate. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. If it lives, eat it. And I, as I have, as I gave you green plants, I give you Everything. So don't buy the lie that you can only eat certain things. God says everything. If it moves, swallow it. Have it as a meal. 
I'm all for that. Yes, amen. It shall be food for you as I gave you green plants. So if it's green, eat it. I give you everything. But you shall not eat uh, flesh while it is uh, with its life, while it is living. That is its blood. Hmm, interesting. Hmm. Just saying, God said it. I didn't say it. While it is wriggling, don't eat it. Have you ever seen people eat certain foods? I will leave it at that. Um, verse 8. But God said to Noah and to his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the living and the livestock and the beasts of the earth with you. And as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Interesting. The waters are not rising to the level that it's going to drown out the earth. Don't buy the lie of the environmentalists. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I've made with you. For all future generations, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. I have set my rainbow. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What is the sign of the rainbow? I've judged the earth and I will never again judge the earth in this way. Doesn't mean that he won't judge the earth. Why did God judge the earth? Because of the corruption of humanity. And so the rainbow is a sign of God's grace that he will never do that again despite the fall of man. What is the rainbow a sign for today? The corruption of humanity. Interesting, eh? If you go to Revelation, there's a rainbow over the throne of God. He reclaims the rainbow. It's his. Look at verse 28. And Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he, what? He's dead as well. There is no savior yet. That's the point of the generations. It is to show you there's not this guy. It is not this guy. Notice that the generations all focus on a man. Why? Because the promised seed is that the promise to Eve was that the seed of the woman, he shall crush the head of the serpent. It will be a man. I am so sorry. That is not 50 chapters in one go. I really intended to do that. That poses a problem. I will have to give my notes to Frank so that he can finish the rest of Genesis for me because this is my last um, for a couple of weeks. Actually, next week we have the AGM. Um, so I'm going to end over there, and we have the introduction of the nations. Um, any questions? I'll give a couple of moments for questions or comments. And then we ended over there. Hmm. And this is a place where he plays, where he sent his son. Could we then say, theologically speaking, that the earth is the center of the universe? Theologically, yes. 
scientifically, it's um, the sun is, not, not earth. But um, it is. God's focus is on earth. The only place that God looks to is this little rock, this third rock from the sun. It's the only place that God's eyes are on. Um, he governs all of creation, but the only place that he gives his attention to is this little place in the scope of the universe. Anything else? Good point, Peter. Wait for the mic. Um, oh, no. If it's an environmental question, <laughs> I don't have an answer. <laughs> no. This is a quick one. How do you justify creation without Genesis chapter 1 to 3? How do I? How do you justify creation without Genesis chapter 1 to 3? How would we justify creation? Well, creation can't exist apart from God's creative work. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand the question. So um, can you clarify a little bit? So biblically, if, if Genesis chapter 1 was not there, mm. how, would you, how would you have justified creation? You can't. Okay. You can't. Genesis 1 um, through to 2 verse 4 is foundational to understand why things exist and how things came to be. Without that, you don't have uh, creation. And I didn't get into the evolution debate. So I think it's a stupid debate. I'm not saying that um, the debate is stupid. I think it's stupid to believe in evolution. Even theistic evolutionists, it's a stupid view. Because you are saying that it, by slow, um, undirected uh, chance, things come into existence. That's not possible. Scientifically, you cannot prove that. The Bible tells us that God made by saying. And so you don't have a creation apart from that. And so, you, yeah, it just it doesn't exist. So other references, for example, Colossians, I think 1, 15, 16, are they referring to Genesis? They are. Okay. Yeah, Genesis, uh, Colossians 1, even John 1, um, tells us that uh, all things were created by him and for him. It exists for him because he's the one that made it. Um, if, you, if you make an object, and you're not intending to sell it, whose object is it? It's yours. It's your possession. So if Christ is the maker of creation, what does it mean about creation? It's, it's his. It's, it exists for him. One final comment, and then we'll quote a quits. No. Okay, let's uh, take a short break. Um, we'll resume at 10 after. Um,